welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. I'm a photographer who has lived most of my life in Austin, and I really love the art community here. When I was trying to figure out what I could do to give back and maybe help that community, I decided to start interviewing the creative people I know and share those conversations in a way that anyone can listen in and hopefully find some value in the lives, careers, and passions of those around them. I'm so grateful to be able to do this, and I'm thankful to everyone who has already been a guest. I'm really looking forward to the coming year and all the people I will meet and interview and get to spend time with. You just might be one of those people. So this is my 10th episode, and I am excited to share this interview with Claire Howard, who is the Assistant Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Blanton Museum here in Austin. When I found out the museum would be hosting a traveling photography exhibition called The Open Road, I knew I had to find someone who could speak about the content of the show, all of the work that goes on behind the scenes to integrate the work into a new space, and maybe the best part of it all, the chance to add elements to the original curation that are both relevant to the work and to our location and its history. Don't miss this great exhibition, which will be on view until January 7, 2018. It was organized by the Aperture Foundation in New York and curated by David Campany and Denise Wolfe, supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Please enjoy this conversation with Claire. Well, hello, Claire. Thanks for being on my podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, um, I'm happy to be here, too. So we're at the Blanton. And uh, what is your position here? Tell me about your, your job. I'm the assistant curator of modern and contemporary art at the Blanton, and I've been here for um, just over six months. I am primarily responsible for managing the touring exhibitions of modern and contemporary art that we take. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just managed the Open Road, which is open now until January 7th. And then this coming year, I'm going to be managing um, two exhibitions, one organized by the American Federation of Arts and the Seattle Art Museum called Ancestral Modern, and that's um, Mm. contemporary Aboriginal painting and sculpture. And then um, next fall, I'll be managing um, a show called Making Africa that was organized by the Vitra Design Museum in Germany, which is um, contemporary African design. So I have two uh, big projects coming up this year, and it's the one I just finished. That sounds exciting. Yeah. And I guess this, the open road show is, is it not somewhat of a rare photographic based show here at the Blanton? For us, it is. Yeah. Um, kind of just in an informal staff poll. It was the first show that anyone could remember since this building opened in 2006 um, of photography that's been held in our, our Butler galleries, which are the downstairs um, kind of temporary exhibition galleries. We've had photography shows um, before uh, Julia McDon- or Jessica McDonald from um, the Harry Ransom Center did a show of Ralph Meatyard's photographs mm-hmm. and um, Beverly Adams, our curator of Latin American art, did a Peruvian photography show. Um, but those were both in our upstairs galleries. So this is the first time we've given this amount of space to a photography show. And why do you think that is? Or maybe that's kind of the state of things in general at museums. Like why is photography not... It hasn't quite reached the level of all the other art. Yeah, well, for the Blanton specifically, I think we always kind of, you know, there was kind of an institutional assumption that the Harry Ransom Center obviously has an incredible photography collection Mm -hmm. and, you know, a curator of photography and um, has always been kind of very dedicated to photography. And so I think to some extent, um, that was kind of their thing as opposed to our thing. Um, We have 
some photographs, but nowhere near what they have collection wise. And it's an area of our collection that we are interested in growing now. Mm -hmm. Um, But it hasn't traditionally been one of our focuses at the Blanton. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's something that has, you know, great popular appeal. And I think people are really interested in seeing. And so um, hopefully it's something we'll be doing more of in the future. So tell me, how did you get into the art world? Or where did you like even as far back as you want to go to childhood? Like, when do you remember caring about art or learning about art or being interested in it? Yeah, well, I grew up in um, Philadelphia, going to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And my mom was a an art history major in college. And so she took me to the museum a lot. And oh, nice. I would look at her old textbooks and things like that when I was little. Um, uh, I first started working in museums when I was in college. I had, again, you know, taken an art history course because my mom kind of insisted. She yeah. said, we really shouldn't go to college and, and not take one art history survey. Sure. So um, I took the Renaissance to Modern survey and was just hooked and, you know, mm. really loved it. And I got an internship at my college's art museum for the summer and then uh, kind of kept working there during the school year and then was um, fortunate to get an internship at uh, Cooper Hewitt, the National Design Museum. It's part of the Smithsonian system mm. in New York right after I... Um, graduated from college. And then I moved back to Philadelphia and got a job as a gallery guide at the Fabric Workshop and Museum in Philadelphia, which is um, kind of a a contemporary art museum, but also very unique in that it has a lot of um, both uh, apprentices and artists in residence, and they kind of work together to realize projects in new media. So they do have a a collection, um, but it's largely work that's been produced In, at the workshop um, okay. as a collaboration between um, artists and residents and their apprentices and, and kind of studio people who work there full time. Um, so that was a really fascinating place to work and great exposure to contemporary art for me. And then I um, got a job as a research assistant at the Philadelphia Museum of Art in the Modern and Contemporary Department. And I worked there for four and a half years um, oh, wow. for a curator named Michael Taylor. I worked with Michael on a few big exhibitions, the kind of two major ones that were my my focus for most of my time there were a retrospective of Arshil Gorky, mm-hmm. um, a painter, and then um, an exhibition on Marcel Duchamp's last work, Etan Denet, which was kind of a secret project that he worked on for 20 years mm. um, that's been in the, the collection of the Philadelphia Museum of Art since his death. It was the 40th anniversary of that work, and so we worked on an exhibition to kind of contextualize kind of within his work at large. Um, And then I left Philadelphia to come to UT for grad school in 2010 and knew that I really wanted to continue museum work while I was doing my graduate studies because museum work really is um, kind of a whole different set of skills. It's, you know, and it's like a a muscle and I didn't want to lose that Mm. muscle memory. Um, So I got an internship at the Blanton kind of right after I arrived in Austin and, um, Worked here for three years as a graduate research assistant. And then um, just last year, I was at the Manil Foundation as a, or the Manil Collection um, in Houston as a graduate fellow and landed the job here. So that's kind of my, my trajectory. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <That's a lot. laughs> but, you know, I'm really excited to be kind of on the staff here, here at the Blanton. Yeah. That's kind of my, my life in art so far. Are there any like, uh, any moments from that history that you just told me that really stick out to you, like formative moments or just moving moments where you were like, I am really doing what I want to do. I really love this. I mean, just, you know, yeah. any uh, stories like that? Yeah. I mean, working at the fabric workshop was 
huge for me. I mean, I was only there for six months um, because it was a part-time gig and I eventually got a full-time job at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So I left the workshop, but I was really um, sad to leave because I, I met, you know, still some of kind of the most interesting people I know there. Um, a lot of artists worked at the workshop, um, either as apprentices or um, on the staff. Uh, you know, someone like uh, Alex DeCorte, who's now a, a really rising star in the mm -hmm. art world and, you know, doing incredible projects all over the place. Um, he was at the fabric workshop at the same time I was. I think he was an apprentice um, while I was a gallery guide. And, um, you know, so getting to meet him really early on in his career uh, and then, um, you know, just getting to know the other artists who were there and kind of getting getting a sense through them of kind of the larger network beyond kind of you know, the Philadelphia Museum of Art or even somewhere like the Fabric Workshop, but kind of this whole network of artist-run spaces hmm. that are really big in Philadelphia because it was still kind of a city that was affordable enough for artists to stay in. They would go there for art school yeah. or, you know, it was kind of an alternative to New York um, in that it was very, you know, studio space was still pretty affordable and artists could get like warehouse space. There was one kind of industrial building in particular that had, you know, a few different artist-run spaces in it. And so that was really kind of formative for me. And it was kind of like, you know, they'd all have openings every first Friday. And it was just kind of the thing is, you know, you'd go and, you know, hit these different spaces and kind of see the work and see your friends and see their work. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was um, just a really good uh, community. And so that was really important for me. So it's like yeah. working one-on-one -on -one with artists, mm -hmm. whereas maybe in a museum setting, you might never even meet the artists. Well, I mean, it depends. If you're working in a modern and contemporary context, oh, okay. you yeah. know, if you're um, working with living artists, then yeah, yeah you do get to, to work closely with them. But it's, it's, you know, a different sort of relationship than kind of going into, you know, it's bringing them into your space versus kind of going to their spaces and kind of seeing what they're doing. And, and really, you know, I think... I'm a big believer in artist-run spaces because I think it's really kind of the front lines of, of seeing what's out there. You know, artists might know, um, you know, know other artists and promote their work and things like that. I was just um, talking to some members of the uh, ICOSA Collective yeah. in Austin who had invited Tiger Strikes Asteroid from Los Angeles, but that was actually a collective that started in Philadelphia while I was mm. there. And, and we were, we kind of had a dinner a couple of weekends ago where we were all talking about kind of the importance of artist run spaces and artists, you know, working as curators in that context too, and kind of getting, um, you know, how that kind of, they know what's out there because it's, you know, it's kind of a crucial platform. Yeah. So it does not to bring up something kind of depressing, but it seems like a lot of the spaces are in danger here in town. And yeah. what do you think it would take to get people to support the arts more? Because it seems like, I don't know, it's I feel like that's the way things should be in Austin, but I don't know if they are. Yeah. I've read some things recently about that, that people are concerned. Yeah, it's a real estate question, I think. Mm. Um, you know, in large part, it's, you know, that... Artists move into, you know, and then this is all also, you know, wrapped up with conversations about gentrification, but that yeah. it's, um, you know, artists often are the first people to kind of find cheap um, studio space or cheap exhibition space in, you know, kind of formerly um, yeah. industrial buildings that might be in, you know, neighborhoods that 
you know, they might be the first ones to start showing art there, but then that kind of has an impact on the neighborhood. And as that neighborhood becomes more of a, you know, kind of like a hip place to be, it becomes more desirable for uh, developers. Um, And so, you know, you have the effect on the people who are already there, but then eventually you have the effect on the artists themselves when, you know, someone wants to turn that warehouse they were showing in into um, condos or something. And Mm -hmm. so I think there needs to be, you know, I don't know if it's at the city level or or what, but some protection or something or some kind of, you know, compassionate developer who's willing to carve out space in uh, a condo building, if that's what Mm -hmm. it's going to have to come to, um, for artists to, um, to show their work in. And I think, you know, hopefully something like that can happen for a place like, you know, Pump Project or Colab or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, who are, are being displaced right now. I mean, from a kind of market perspective, you have to think that that would add value to a condo building too. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have kind of an art gallery on the on the first floor, and it's kind of a you know a hip lifestyle thing for the people in the condo building. But yeah. it's um, you know, if you want to be cynical about it, but it's um, I think there just needs to be some kind some way to allow uh, artists to have spaces that they can you know, exist in for, yeah. for a period of time rather yeah. than, you know, kind of constantly having to pick up and move when the somewhere place gets sold out from under them. Mm-hmm. And what is your sense being here at the Blanton of the public's interest in art here at the museum? I think people are really um, enthusiastic. We have a really fantastic audience here at the Blanton. We have obviously in our UT community, um, but also being kind of positioned where we are and being the only collecting art museum um, in town. You know, I think we get a lot of, you know, general enthusiasm from Austin at large, as well as, you know, tourists who come to town and want to go to the art museum. Yeah. Uh, come here. So we have a really, um, a really great audience. And I think, you know, they're very enthusiastic and very attuned to art as part of of life. And um, I think we have a lot of programs that bring people in and, and kind of build art into experiences of things like live music through all of our music programming and, yeah. and things like that. Um, you know, I think we try to make it not just, you know, a day at the museum, but also, you know, something else for people, because I think that's kind of what Austin audiences are are interested in. Yeah, definitely. So back to the open road. Mm-hmm. Whenever you found out the show was coming, what kind of preparation would you do, if any, to kind of receive that? Yeah, well, the show um, had already been kind of taken on and put on the schedule before I got here. So it was um, kind of, I just hit the ground running on it kind mm-hmm. of as soon as I started. It was, you know, I started and it was like, oh, this is, you know, six months away. So, yeah. so I mean, the first thing I did was acquaint myself with, you know, the checklist and kind of get a handle on you know, who was in the show, how many things were in the show, and begin to kind of think about what it would look like in our space. Um, And so we, uh, we have kind of a little model of our gallery space Mm. that we work with. And our, our exhibition designer, James, had the fantastic idea to um, make those angled walls that are in the exhibition Mm -hmm. um, as a way of kind of giving a sense of like, dynamism uh, to the show, since it's about road travel. And so I think that's a really kind of interesting um, contribution that he made to to the design of the show and something that I think we decided on pretty early on in the game. You know, we talk about things like programming and, you know, kind of getting the ball rolling on stuff like that early on. So yeah, that's kind of, you know, where it starts. And then it goes on from there to, um, you know, I spent most of the summer kind of working on the additions that we made to the show. Mm-hmm. Um, then it moved into kind of 
editing the text that we received from Aperture for uh, the show, kind of tweaking it to be more, you know, kind of attuned to our audiences. It's, you know, whenever you're taking a traveling show, you want it to be something that your audience is going to respond to. And so you want it to kind of speak to your community in particular. Yeah. Um, and so I made, you know, some tweaks, you know, little tweaks to their text, wrote new texts for the things we added. Um, you know, we kind of laid out the show in the model. We have like tiny versions of all the photos okay. in the show. Oh, and wow. so, you, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of playing with the model. Like it's like a little a little dollhouse mm. version of the show. And so, you know, I kind of finalized the layout and got approvals on all of that. And so there are kind of, you know, it's a lot of different steps that you go through. And, and when you're taking a traveling show, you know, there's a lot you don't have to do because um, you're not originating the show. So mm-hmm. someone else has already selected all the work, written the catalog and written the texts. And, and it's kind of just up to you to um, tailor it to your institution and your audiences in particular. Maybe let's talk about that, the yeah. origin of it mm-hmm. for a second. Yeah. So it was organized by the Aperture Foundation in New York, and they um, publish Aperture magazine, um, as well as a number of books on different photographers. And so they really do a lot of good work to promote photography as kind of a as a fine art and kind mm-hmm. of as a, a discourse. So they really kind of know their stuff and um, found just a, a great roster of artists for this show, kind of identifying this theme um, that would kind of allow you to get really almost like a who's who of post-World War II photography from, you know, Robert Frank through Ryan McGinley and, uh, you know, kind of all viewed through this lens of the road, the road trip. And so it was organized by um, David Campany, who's a British photography scholar, and Denise Wolf, who's a senior editor at Aperture. And so they worked together to put the exhibition together and to write the catalog. Um, and then it's been on tour, I believe, since 2014. It was shown at the Crystal Bridges uh, Museum of Art in Arkansas, mm-hmm. the Detroit Institute of Arts, St. Petersburg Museum of Art. Um, so it's been kind of traveling around. But I think the feeling was that it was something that Austin audiences would really respond to well, that there is kind of a road trip culture in Texas, you know, with it being, you know, kind of, you know, such a a state that really lends itself to long drives. Yeah, no matter um, what you do. Yeah, yeah, you kind of don't have an option. Um, And so I think there was kind of a a feeling that this was a show that would be really appealing to our audience. Well, I read something where it said that David Campany introduced the photographic road trip as a genre, the first book to do so. Yeah, yeah, this is the first exhibition to examine the road trip as a photographic genre, Mm -hmm. um, kind of in and of itself. Um, and so it's, you know, as I was saying, it's this theme that does allow you to kind of bring together so many big names in photography and, mm-hmm. and kind of focus on this one, this one theme, but also kind of see the, the variety of interpretations of that theme that different photographers bring. So what's the time period like when you're actually hanging? Are like, are you in there with your hammer and nails? And <laughs> I don't physically hang things myself. Um, no, we have a fantastic crew headed by um, James Swan, who is just about to um, retire. This is actually his last oh, wow. week with us. So um, James has been at the Blanton for a very long time. Um, and so he really knows the installation process here inside and out and has built a really great crew The installation process is um, kind of everything uh, arrives in crates and Mm -hmm. gets kind of unpacked, brought up to the exhibition space. It's inspected to make sure everything's in good condition. And then it kind of gets placed according to uh, where I'd put things in that little model. And then I kind of fine tune it from there. So um, once the guys have everything unpacked and kind of set out, um, you know, kind of just leaning against the wall, 
I'll kind of look up close at everything and kind of, you know, you notice things when you're dealing with the actual objects, like in one of the uh, the Joel Meyerowitz photographs that we looked at of a, it's kind of a, a christening of a boat. And so the kind of main event in the foreground of the photograph is um, a woman is kind of cracking a, yeah. a bottle of champagne against the kind of the hull of the boat. But in the background, something I had never noticed just looking at, you know, small reproductions of this, um, of this photograph until, it, you know, and then once it was right in front of me, it kind of jumped out that there's this like Santa kind of being, he's like on a crane kind of flying in in the background, yeah. kind of like over this crowd. And so, th- you know, things like that, you notice um, the scale, the scale. Of the pieces, yeah, because sure. when you're looking at, you know, reproductions in a catalog, you don't have a sense of the scale of things. And so when you're seeing, you know, the actual size, and you're able to examine things in more detail, and, um, you know, you can kind of look at what are the you know what are the scales of the people in this image and you know how close do you want to look at it versus do you want to back up from it and kind of think about all those things and I tried to kind of keep that in mind when I was thinking about kind of sequencing the hang and so um, you know you do some fine tuning once things are kind of unpacked and on the ground you you know the um, yeah. our art handlers are really great about kind of switching things around for me a lot and yeah. kind of you know re rearranging things within the individual artist groupings. You know, I was here the other day and I saw the show and Stephen Holschler spoke and he was very complimentary towards you. And I just wonder, like, how do you know where to hang everything? I mean, how do you figure that out? You know, I mean, yeah. it's there's an art to that. And it's very obvious that a lot of thought was put into it. And it's very smart and the way it flows. I mean, is it just intuition? Is it just years of experience? Like, where do you, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's a lot of learning over time. I mean, I would go when I was working for Michael Taylor in Philadelphia, I would try to be kind of on the floor with him whenever he was hanging a show um, that we had worked on. And, you know, I would kind of be watching and and kind of thinking, you know, like, I'd move that to the left, or I'd switch those two things. And I'd kind of wait to see if he said to do that or not. And Mm. I would feel, you know, kind of super uh, validated when he would. And (laughs) or sometimes he would say, what do you think? And I would say I would switch those two things. And then he'd be like, yeah, that works. So it's, it's just training, um, Mm. training your eye, I think, you know, looking really closely. And that's, you know, kind of a, a huge part of why I wanted to work in museums was to be able to work with the objects physically, uh, you know, not with a hammer and nail per se, but, um, you know, kind of to spend that much time looking closely at the actual objects in person is really what drew me to this um, this work. But yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of, you know, that's kind of it. I, I spent a lot of time with the model, you know, try, you know, rearranging things a few times. And there were things that even I'd put, you know, one place in the model. And when they... Um, you know, arrived, it kind of was clear that they just weren't going to work, mm. or I'd kind of placed them in the model. And so we had to do a little last minute rearranging, specifically kind of at the end of the exhibition, the more recent works by Honorado and Krebs, the Swiss mm-hmm. photographers switched places with the photos by Justine Carland and Ryan McGinley, mm-hmm. um, kind of at the last minute, like while we were, you know, kind of not the very last minute, because we were at the beginning of the installation yeah. process. But, um, you know, they'd always been in a different place in the model. But once they were kind of physically there, we noticed that, you know, for instance, the glare from the the light coming in from the atrium um, outside oh, was, you know, reflecting yeah. really badly off of one of the Honorado and Krebs works. And so um, that was one of kind of the reasons we decided to, to switch them away from, you know, to be away from that doorway mm-hmm. and why the um, 
unglazed uh, Ryan McGinley works are now kind of the ones you see from the atrium. But everyone has said, you know, it works super well. And those two Ryan McGinley photos that we have kind of hung close together as your viewpoint from the, the atrium kind of into the show's exit. I think it, yeah. it works really well, but it's, you know, something that until you have the physical objects there, you kind of, you know, you can plan a lot, but you have to kind of be be ready to rearrange once you're kind of dealing with the objects themselves. And how does it feel once it's all up and ready to go and you're just kind of walking around? Do you just feel like, yeah, yeah, it feels it. really nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, it makes I'm I'm really, um, really happy with how it turned out. It's, you know, it feels it feels super. And, you know, it's been really nice to go in there and see people, uh, people visiting. I think also, you know, this is like minutia, I guess, in some sense. But um, we just had the floors uh, in our Butler Gallery redone. Mm. Um, and so they're now kind of lighter and brighter. And I think it just works so well um, with the photographs. So it's a really great show to kind of debut the new floors. Um, okay. But they, yeah. I mean, they look really fantastic. I think it was something that, you know, at least I didn't anticipate that it would make, you know, that big a difference. But now when I go in the space, it feels really kind of light and bright. And um, I think it works really well with the photographs. So I feel, you know, I feel really good about it. So I guess uh, maybe we could talk about the work itself. I have this book of Joel Sternfeld's work, American Prospects, which his work is in the show. And Andy Grunberg wrote the intro. And I just thought it was kind of a nice intro to this type of work in general. He says, Why is there such an urge to encompass America, or at least that part of the North American continent that is the United States? Why this drive to swallow the country whole, to know it as one knows a lover, to reveal its innermost essence, when it was born of many parts, a federation of different states of place and mind? Perhaps it is the vastness of the undertaking that draws us in, the immensity of the task. Perhaps it is the ineffability of of this country, its significance so great that it invites description even while it defies it. Or perhaps it is because America is really a mirror, and in this process of describing it, we cannot help but describe ourselves. In this case, what is at issue in in books or photography about America is not just the quality of observation, but the construction of history. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it just I made think... me think about the work. Yeah, and he's getting at the, you know, kind of, I think the vastness of America is kind of both like the allure and the challenge Mm -hmm. to a lot of the photographers in the show that, you know, I always really like to underscore that um, there are 19 photographers in the show and of that group, seven um, of them weren't born in the US. And so I think it, you know, there's kind of something about America as, you know, kind of this, that it's so vast, but at the same time, so diverse in terms of the people and the landscape and the things you see as you kind of travel across America that I think that's really kind of the allure for a lot of the the photographers in this show. And so kind of what you get back is is really interesting to me because it's there are so many different approaches and different styles possible um, in photographing America and different subjects that you can tackle or takes on it. But at the same time, I really am interested in kind of like the motifs that recur throughout the show. So, you know, there are a lot of photos in the show of people shooting from inside their cars where you're getting kind of the car um, window or the windshield, you know, kind of just at the edges of the frame and they're really using it as a framing device. Mm -hmm. Um, Joel Meyerowitz talks about that. Inga Marath does it. Um, It's kind of throughout the show. Um, Eli Reed, one of the photos we added from him is shot from inside of a car. Uh, And so there's kind of that motif or 
you know, kind of the signs or, you know, things like that that kind of recur throughout, I think, are, are interesting to look at, too. So both the similarities and the differences. Mm-hmm. Tell me about some of the work that really stands out to you that maybe is your favorite now that you've seen mm-hmm. it all up. Well, I, I love the Sternfeld um, series, American Prospects. Yeah. Um, I like, you know, that there's a little bit of there's a little bit of humor in the photographs that they're mm-hmm. kind of these amazing, you know, big, big prints that he's shooting, you know, in a large format, um, with a large format camera. And so, you know, he really he kind of, you know, he talks about the need for photography to compete with painting, you know, mm. and so he's really interested in the seasons and in colors and things like that in his photos. But there's like just one detail that's kind of off in all of his photos. And yeah. I really I just really appreciate that there's kind of this hide and seek quality where you're kind of, you know, you're looking at one thing in the photo because it's, you know, beautiful and, and interesting as a composition. And then you notice that there's something, you know, completely strange, like the, you know, the house on fire with the pumpkins yeah. in front of it. And then you notice that there's, you know, one of the firemen is, you know, buying a pumpkin at this little farm stand. <laughs> yeah. And it's like that your job's not done. The house is still on fire. Yeah. Um, I think is is kind of interesting. Um, and so I like kind of the quirkiness of, of his take. I also really love Lee Friedlander's American Monument series mm-hmm. because it has so many kind of elements in it that are like peak Friedlander, you know, like um, the reflections, you know, of himself or the kind of the windows with reflections of other things in them. Um, those kind of, you know, the rectangular, that kind of like the social landscape aspect of, of his photographs and kind of how people find their way within the built environment. But I think there's something really kind of funny, but also a little melancholy about the the monuments that he's photographing and, and kind mm-hmm. of just, you know, it's such a such an interesting concept for a project and such a fascinating way to kind of look at, you know, what have we, you know, historically valued and then how does that fare kind of over the yeah. centuries? Does anyone even notice? Yeah, you know, anymore? have have values changed? You know, do we these things that we kind of put up to, you know, remember things in perpetuity, you know, kind of get swamped to some extent or kind of left, you know, out in the middle of nowhere or something. Mm-hmm. Um see so at this kind of like if a tree falls in the forest effect. Yeah. <laughs> I think is really um you know, some of his photos are really funny, but some are kind of, you know, poignant. Mm-hmm. And then I love the Alex Soth um Sleeping by the Mississippi series as yeah. well. Yeah, I think those are also, I mean, again, you know, the the kind of poignant aspect of them. Um and that, that sense of melancholy, but again, just kind of like the color um, in those photographs is really beautiful to me. There are three that are, there's one that has kind of just, you know, it's almost all red. It's a woman sitting and it's called Kim and she's photographed at um, the Polish palace in Minneapolis. And that photo is all red. There's one of a gas station that's basically all blue. And then there's one of kind of a, a wall um, in, you know, what you imagine is like an abandoned house yeah. that's all yellow. And I think just kind of the colors, just having a, a photograph with, you know, a lot of detail, but kind of a monochrome palette like that is really amazing to me. What I thought was interesting about Alex's picture of the gas station was yeah. that the name of it is Cemetery, which yeah. I didn't even notice the cemetery until I saw the title. I love that one. It was like, it's kind of hidden behind yeah. the gas station. Yeah. And again, you get the kind of like that there's kind of a Sternfeld aspect to that, you know, that you're just mm. looking at the gas station, then you notice this other thing behind it, and you're yeah. like, well, what's going on? But also, you know, like Ed Ruscha's gas stations, and, you know, kind of, again, one of these, like, motifs that recurs throughout the show. So I think it was a very kind of canny uh, 
curatorial decision to include that photograph by Alex Soth within kind of put it in in dialogue with these other photographers. I'm trying to remember the context of that project. He traveled down the Mississippi. Yeah, and it's that's one of my favorite. We have these little um, maps that Aperture did of uh, kind of each photographer's, you know, as, as much as they were able to. There are some photographers like Eggleston. I think they don't know the location of all those photos. But when they were able to, Aperture mapped out kind of the location of each photograph. Mm-hmm. So each each photographer has his or her own map. And um, a lot of them, you know, you'll get kind of a, a direct route east-west, like um, Ed Ruscha, for example, going back and forth between on Route 66 between uh, Los Angeles, where he lived, and his parents' house in Oklahoma. So he's going kind of back and forth. You'll get people who kind of cover basically the whole country, almost like scattershot. And then Alex Soth is the only one who has just kind of this like, you know, north-south trajectory. And he's going kind of straight down the Mississippi, starting in um, Minneapolis, where he's from. Hmm. And so his is my favorite map to point out when I give tours, um, because I think it's it's a different approach. And I think he was very kind of conscious of that, that, you know, people kind of pass over the Mississippi kind of on their way west um, Hmm. for a road trip, but they don't necessarily go go down it. And so he really wanted to kind of document what was happening, happening along the Mississippi now that it's no longer kind of the trade route that it once was. So I think that's where some of kind of the melancholy and the kind of like left behind aspect of a lot of the the kind of people and places he photographs um, in that series, uh, where that comes from. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the two women that are in the show. Yeah, Inga Morath was is one of the earliest photographers in the show. um, And Justine Kurland is one of the most recent photographers in the show. So they're kind of nice bookends. Inga Morath was really kind of a revelation for me. I found her really interesting because she is um, she was Austrian. And she came to the United States and she worked for the Magnum Photo Agency first as an editor, and then she became a a photographer as well. And so she was sent along with... um, with a number of other Magnum photographers, they were sent from New York out to Reno, Nevada to document the filming of the Marilyn Monroe movie, The Misfits. It was written by Arthur Miller, who was at the time um, kind of in the process of his marriage to Marilyn Monroe was falling apart. And Inga Morath actually met him and um, I think on the set of The Misfits and they got married a couple of years later. So it's it's kind of when you're looking at, at her photos from that road trip, it's kind of like, oh, she didn't know she was, you know, at the end of this road trip going to meet her husband. And I think he, she also was on that road trip with Henri Cartier-Bresson, who was her. So Henri Cartier-Bresson was kind of her mentor. And of course, you know, the decisive moment was kind of like genre defining um, mm-hmm. in terms of photography. And so the two of them were, were making this drive from New York out to Reno. And she was really... Um, kind of struck by, you know, kind of the roadside kitsch that she was seeing. Um, so we have, you know, really wonderful photos of signs and, you know, casinos and things like that that she took. Um, there's a great one of, um, I think it's a mobile home community, and there's a kind of portrait of this man, and it says, like, next to it, it says, Lewis Poole, this is the man to see. And so it's, you know, kind of that, you know, super kitschy mid-century road sign kind of circa 1960. But she was also kind of, you know, she she was recording because she was a writer as well. She was kind of taking, you know, kind of writing down her experiences at the same time that she was photographing them. And she writes about being kind of very uh, unsettled by kind of the roadside tourist um, traps that she saw in North Carolina. And we have two photographs in the show of these kind of like Native American villages that have been turned into tourist attractions. And so, you know, there are just tons of cars parked there. One of them is of a a basket weaving demonstration. And I think she found it very strange that, you know, America has 
you know, historically treated Native Americans very yeah. poorly, but then to turn around and kind of commodify the the culture as kind of this tourist trap was really strange to her. So again, I think there's kind of this, you know, what I find really interesting is kind of the perspective of um, the photographers who weren't born in the U.S. and come here and kind of what they what they see and respond to as they're making their road trips. And hers was kind of a little bit more optimistic sense of awe, kind of like, wow, wasn't it? I mean, I, think, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there were some things that she found kind of, you know, like the Native American villages. Yeah. yeah. But I think, yeah, she kind of, I think she'd only lived in New York. And so getting out kind of into, you know, the vastness of America and kind of seeing all this kitschy, middle America on her way out to mm-hmm. Reno was was kind of revelatory for her, yeah. you know, both kind of its positive and negative mm-hmm. aspects. And then Justine Curland, as I said, is kind of one of the, the two most recent photographers in the show, along with Ryan McGinley. And she, I believe, had a, a son named Casper in 2004. Um, and when he was born, they started making road trips together. And so they had kind of a customized van that they would travel in. And um, Casper got really interested in trains. And so we have a photograph in the show of him kind of playing with this. He has kind of a little setup of a toy train set on a table. It's kind of like right in front of kind of this big freight train going Mm -hmm. by behind him in the background. So she kind of photographed him with trains, and then he got really interested in cars, and so she would take photos of cars. But while they were traveling around in this kind of like itinerant lifestyle, they would meet other kind of nomadic people. And so people who were kind of living on the fringes of, of mainstream society, whether, you know, by choice or, or not. Um, mm-hmm. And so she would um, document those those communities. I think it's interesting that we kind of end the show with her and Ryan McGinley, because both of them are kind of looking at these, you know, the kind of road trip lifestyle. But I think his is a much more kind of romanticized escapist mm. version of it than than hers is. So that's yeah. It's a nice kind of point counterpoint on which to end the show. I wonder if you could make the same work these days. I mean, I feel like America is so much different than it was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Everyone's taking pictures. Everyone has a camera in their pocket. It's just like a different world. I wonder what kind of work would be made now on the same kind of trips. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's like some of that... Some of that stuff is still out there. It's been updated. And I think, you know, what I always like to drive home, I think sometimes there's kind of a resistance to photography that we were kind of talking about before we started recording, kind of yeah. the, the feeling of, you know, well, I take photos, you know, why is my, why is my photo not in a museum? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, it's important to think about kind of the composition and kind of the eye that photographers bring to um to what they see and kind of the you know the decisive moment and the cardio um parlance or kind of you know um just a really strong eye for composition and someone like you know Stephen shore taking a photograph of his breakfast in this mm-hmm. kind of roadside diner um you know really kind of taking the time to set up an eight by ten camera and um you know photograph this breakfast because he's responding really strongly to kind of this like you know, 70s, you know, fake wood grain texture with these kind of these circular forms of the pancakes and the glasses and the cantaloupe. And Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, that all that stuff is kind of still out there. It's just about kind of maybe slowing down and taking the time to see it. And maybe that's, you know, so much of the time I take just a really quick, not great photo on my camera, you know, but I think um, for for skilled photographers, I think there's still, you know, a lot of kind of visual um, richness to draw on. It's just about kind of 
being able to take the time to mm-hmm. to see it and you know having the talent to be able to kind of see these compositions and frame them and the show is kind of let off with robert frank's mm-hmm. work who i don't know if he's the most famous or his work is the most famous in the show but it's comes from his book the americans his series which was a first of its kind tell me about that work whether he's the most famous or not i think he's he's probably the most famous within the the photographers who are you know with for photographers, um, yeah. uh, if not for the public at large, because and I really think, you know, he sets the tone both kind of thematically and stylistically for so many of the other photographers in the show, both his kind of approach that he's working kind of with, you know, a 35 millimeter camera, he is working really quickly. And so he's kind of disobeying a lot of the the rules of, mm-hmm. you know, good photography up to that point, you know, he's not kind of getting, you know, like Ansel Adams or someone like that. Um, He's kind of shooting more quickly, and so you'll get blurs or things will be a little grainy, out of focus, off kilter, things like that. But it's really kind of more about kind of capturing a moment and capturing Mm -hmm. a motif and um, kind of before it passes by for him. And I think that kind of that approach really was, you know, crucial for someone following him like Gary Winogrand. But even later on, you know, Victor Bergen and um, the late 1970s is really inspired by both Robert Frank's photos and his movies. Uh, he kind of continues to be someone who's very influential. And I think thematically, he kind of talks a lot about, he says, a photographer's life can never be a matter of indifference, which I think is really amazing because mm. it, it kind of speaks to both kind of the need to really be paying attention Um to kind of what's going on around you, but also kind of the the socially critical element that comes into a lot of the photography in the show, you know, whether it's overt or not, you know, there's kind of um, this kind of the responsibility to report, I think, is something that um, that Frank really emphasized in his work and that resonated with a lot of the other photographers in the show. Mm-hmm. Do you think his work leans towards more optimistic or pessimistic view of... Um, I'd say a little pessimistic. And I think that's part of, you know, the initial reception of it in the 50s, you know, and you think about kind of the Cold War era and kind of the almost like the propaganda function of like a life magazine essay where you have kind of, you know, these those photo essays that would give you kind of a very neat little story kind of tied up with a bow. I think Mm -hmm. Frank was going after something a little more open ended and maybe a little less um, gung ho, you know, and kind of rah rah about things. I think there was a lot that he found out in America that was very... um, you know, disturbing to him and his photos reflect that. And I think there was for a certain group of viewers in the fifties, I think that was kind of um, shocking and not acceptable, but I think for a lot of other people, it really kind of struck a chord and um, Jack Kerouac and his introduction to the first kind of English publication of the Americans in 1959, he says that Frank had uh, sucked a sad poem right out of America Mm -hmm. and onto film taking, taking rank amidst the tragic poets of the world or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is just so great, you know, this idea of really kind of getting at something tragic. You know, I think it's definitely there in Frank's work. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the additions that you made to the show and why. Yeah, obviously, uh, on the UT campus, we have just tremendous resources in terms of uh, the archives and libraries and other cultural institutions that are here on campus. Um, and so we like to draw on those when we can to kind of make our shows kind of um give them more kind of historical depth or kind of tie them into Austin more directly. And so the three things that I added, or, you know, three kind of groups of things that I added to the show were, um, I added the Jack Kerouac uh, journal from the Harry Ransom Center. They have the Jack Kerouac papers there, I think. And um, 
they the journal is really fascinating because, of course, kind of the On the Road was published in 1957, and kind of the mythology of it is that it originated in you know the scroll in 1951, and the scroll was kind of the first draft of On the Road that Jack Kerouac kind of sat down and just hammered out in kind of one like unbroken string of po- prose over right. three weeks. But if you look at this journal at the Harry Ransom Center, which dates to 1948-49, you can see him kind of developing the themes that. Mm. Um, kind of reappear later in the in the book and so it's you know he's talking about different seasons and um, locations and themes that he wants to kind of tie together uh, and then the facing page a headline for it is um, crazy jazz and it's kind of all about the feelings he gets from listening to jazz music and it was just kind of such a fortuitous spread to come across mm-hmm. because you know Kerouac's writing style this kind of improvisational style is so often kind of compared to jazz and there's kind of the improvisational aspect of the road trip that you know is really kind of enshrined and on the road as kind of a, a cultural touchstone so um and i'm sure that inspired a lot of road trips that book totally i mean i think that's kind of the that's the shift the catalog for the exhibition has a really interesting section on kind of the 1930s and 40s you know kind of the pre-1955 pre-robert frank um pre-world war ii uh road trips and kind of the close relationship that always existed between photography and and road trips since um cars and cameras kind of reached mass audiences right Mm -hmm. around the same time at the turn of the century they were always kind of very closely linked but i think there is a shift that takes place right around kind of the 50s and the publication of on the road and then you know followed by frank's the americans where you kind of it kind of redefines the road trip as kind of a personal journey as opposed to a documentary journey or or something like that. It's more of kind of a a finding yourself. There's more of an individual um, emphasis that I think, you know, a lot of photographers in the show kind of take on kind of a a personal assignment to get out in America and kind of take on the country as a subject. So I think that's definitely a shift that's kind of attributable to on the road after World War II. So you know, really exciting to be able to, you know, borrow that yeah. uh, journal from the Harry Ransom Center. Um, the second edition I made is a book called the Negro Traveler's Green Book. Um, and the the edition that we borrowed is from 1953. And it comes from the Briscoe Center for American History here at UT. And uh, when I was thinking about the show, you know, I think the road trip is such a myth in American culture. And it's, you know, something that's kind of so integral to, you know, how the country has kind of defined itself. But I think we're at this moment where increasingly we're seeing the need to kind of go back and reexamine those cultural myths about, mm-hmm. you know, what we tell ourselves America is and, and who we are and um, and kind of re-examine them and see, you know, whose experiences and voices are left out of those myths. And yeah. um, I think when we talk about road trips after World War II or any time in the 20th century, really, and still today, um, it's a very different experience to kind of hit the road as an African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, the Green Book was something that I felt very strongly needed to be included in the show because it kind of documents that. It's a, a travel guide that was published, I think it was annually, between 1936 and 1966 by a postal worker named Victor H. Green. Mm -hmm. And he kind of saw this need for uh, listings. They're broken down kind of by city and by state of safe places where African-American travelers could stop during the Jim Crow era. And so it's, you know, not just kind of places where segregation is the law, but, you know, places where segregation is kind of just a fact, um, whether it's the law or not. And so it's, you know, this idea that road trips in American culture have traditionally meant kind of spontaneity and just hitting the road and letting it go where it takes you. And, And you know, for some people, that's easier said than done. Exactly. And so, you know, what I think this the existence of this travel guide points out is, you know, that wasn't everyone's experience. And it's important to have kind of documents that attest to the fact that for 
a large portion of Americans, you know, a road trip actually required a huge amount of planning to make sure that, you know, if you had to stop for gas, that you would find a service station that would serve African-Americans. If you needed a restaurant or a hotel or something like that for the night, you, um, you know, kind of had to know where it was safe. Makes me think of the courage of Mr. Green or whoever did the research Mm -hmm. and figured all those things out and made the mistakes and went to the wrong place and had to deal with that. Yeah, he um, he kind of activated his network of postal service employees. Mm. He kind of, you know, throughout the country would kind of solicit responses from different postal service workers mm. and eventually kind of different readers. If you look at any of the the editions of the Green Book, they say like, we, you know, some of them will say we need listings for such and such place. Like oh, if you okay. know of establishments, please write in and help us kind of flesh out our, our listings. And so it had started as I think just being a listing of friendly establishments in New York. Um, and it eventually encompasses the whole U.S. And then by the time it ends, they have kind of the airline edition and the international travel edition mm. and things like that. So it really speaks to a need. Um, but also, I, you know, in kind of what I've what I've read about it, it's also a really fascinating kind of document for studying um, the growth of, of black owned businesses in the country and kind of the history there um, as well. And, and there's um, a scholar named Allison Hobbs who's writing a book on on the history of the Green Book, and she's kind of traveling and following, you know, kind of the route and, and mm. making stops at different locations described by the um, by the book. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that when it comes out. What a great a edition. And then the last edition, last but not least, is um, Eli Reed, who's a photojournalism professor at UT. He's also a Magnum photojournalist, uh, like Inga Marath, or I think Alex Soth is now affiliated with Magnum. Eli, uh, his his work is in the Magnum collection at the Harry Ransom Center. So we were able to borrow the photographs from the Ransom Center and to work really closely with Eli himself. And he gave a great gallery talk for our visitors a couple weeks ago. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic to add his work. He did a series called Black in America um, that kind of documents African-American life across the country from 1978 to, I think, 1995 or seven was when the book was published. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, he really felt that there was a need for photographs of African-American daily life by a black photographer. But when he would ask for those assignments, his editors would say, you know, no, you're too close to the subject. And so he took it on as kind of a self-assigned project. And so a lot of the photographs in the Black in America book are photographs that he took kind of as side trips from assignments elsewhere. If he was mm-hmm. assigned to cover a news event in one place, some of those photographs are in the book, for instance, like the Crown Heights riots. But he also kind of took side trips um, to kind of photograph just kind of daily life and kind of smaller moments um, to to kind of give like a, a really kind of rich and nuanced picture of African-American life. And so we were really kind of thrilled to, to be able to add the work of, you know, not just a, a local photographer and a UT professor, but also, you know, really just an incredible photographer who, you know, Magnum is, is a really elite agency. So yeah. we we're really thrilled to, to add Eli's work. And I think it adds something really um, important to the exhibition. I think so. If you were going to add anything related to women or other women photographers to the show, what would you mm. add? I'll mention and give a plug here to Jessica McDonald's um, installation at the Harry Ransom Center shows um, photographic work created by women artists um, who were kind of working within a domestic sphere. Mm -hmm. Um, And so oftentimes, you know, I think there's this 
this kind of um, the man is the one in, in kind of in history who's been able to kind of take off on a road trip and kind of follow his self-assigned you know project and see it through on the road you know I think that's that is kind of a a gender imbalance I don't know who specifically I would add I know you know Dorothea Lange is a huge figure mm-hmm. in kind of the early history and she's represented her book um an American Exodus, I think, uh, is in the show. But, you know, if you were going to kind of expand, I was always interested in kind of if you were going to expand the early history of the show, you could add kind of other photographers um, who worked on kind of the Standard Oil survey. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Gordon Parks, for instance, um, worked on kind of that survey project. There was a female photographer whose name escapes me right now, too. But um, so I think, you know, you could expand both kind of forward and backwards, mm, you know, and say yeah. that women have always kind of been involved in kind of the photographic road trip process. If you were going to expand kind of into an exhibition, this early history component as well, mm. there's just not the space for it in this exhibition per yeah. se. But if you were going to do kind of the part two, like prequel, I think you could also, you know, add women there um, mm-hmm. as well. Was there anything you as a photographer found particularly interesting in the show? You know, maybe technically, I know technically there's, you know, kind of the... There's, you know, kind of a shift from 35 millimeter to larger format cameras. I don't know if, you know, that's something that, you know, you were particularly kind of interested in as a photographer, if there's anything else that kind of caught your eye from that aspect. I mean, yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about, imagine the different cameras that were used, the different formats, and even just the different printing processes Mm -hmm. that the choices of the different photographers to print large or on different surfaces, like like Joel Sternfeld's work, Digital Sea Prints. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend that I saw the show with, she said that's a very involved and expensive process mm-hmm. to create those. I thought it was interesting, the work, is it Justine? Justine Curland, yeah. Yeah, without glass, so then there's the lines on the floor. yeah. Yeah, uh, those unglazed, the Ryan McGinley's are unglazed as well. Yeah. So they work really well in that area because there's no glare off of them. But Yeah, I, I'd say yeah. overall seeing the show, it just felt, I felt inspired to take my own road trip and try to do something like that myself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I want to do a road trip around the United States anyway, but I think it would be pretty interesting to kind of soak in this show and kind of like the context and the all the photographers work and and see what I could come up with myself I think that would be really interesting yeah and yeah fun. I think kind of the inspirational um quality of this show for for a lot of a lot of visitors is something that that really kind of you know we were hoping people would get out of it that it would kind of inspire people to do their own road trips as well yeah absolutely Although maybe in a in a you know fuel Oh well, low carbon footprint <laughs> manner. Yeah, do, do a, a train, a, a train ride on a bicycle. <laughs> you could do it. Yeah, on a bike. get on your bike. Yeah. Talk about inspiration. I guess the uh, inspiration for the name of the show came from Walt Whitman's song of the open road, which I thought I might read the beginning of that. It just feels very optimistic to me. A foot and lighthearted, I take to the open road healthy, free, a world before me, the long brown path before me leading wherever I choose. Henceforth, I ask not good fortune. I myself am good fortune. Henceforth, I whimper no more, postpone no more, need nothing. Done with indoor complaints, libraries, querulous criticisms. Strong and content, I travel the open road. I just, yeah, that's, uh, (laughs) 
I feel very, I'm, I need to take a road trip soon, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the show is up until January 7, 2018. And what, if you know off the top of your head, the hours of the museum? Ooh, um, I don't know if they're different over the holidays. Well, they should just say, check the website. I would definitely right? <laughs> say to check the website because I don't want to give out false information. Um, What's if they the website are different, It's blantonmuseum.org. Okay. And you can find our hours there. It'll let you know if there's any special hours for the holidays. But we do encourage people. We're really excited to have this show up over the holiday season and, and um, have people be able to come with their families because we think, you know, it's a show that there really is a lot for people of all ages in. Our education department has found these really interesting interstate highway bingo cards um, oh, nice. that will be available at the front desk if anyone's looking for kind of an activity for younger kids or to do on your own um, to kind of find different images within the photograph. It's kind of a close-looking exercise and something you can, you know, um, keep yeah. your kids occupied with while you spend more time with the photos. And Very cool. So, yeah, fun for the whole family. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thanks for answering all my questions. My pleasure. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider sharing it with anyone that you think might get value from it. And also, consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes at the bottom of the webpage for each episode, or also by tapping the Square Austin Art Talk logo graphic on your phone within the podcast app to discover more info related to my guests, their work, and many of the things we mention and talk about in the episode. Please don't hesitate to share any feedback so that I can continue to improve what I'm creating and make it more useful to you. Thanks again for your time and take care.